0: you may be seated we're going to return today uh, to the book of galatians so i invite you to open with me uh, now to galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7 galatians 4 and verses 1 through 7 and as you open there Uh, Allow me just to give one announcement uh, that it's my response or my fault that was not given earlier. I did not give this to uh, Elder Ruiz, but it is just to note that uh, the wake for Dave Brasca's mother uh, is this Tuesday, November 14th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Ludlow Funeral Home. And the funeral is Wednesday the 15th at 10 a.m. at St. Elizabeth's Parish. And I'll put that in an email this afternoon so you have it in written form, but um, I just didn't want to make that announcement uh, this morning. Well, trust that you're open now to the book of uh, Galatians. You may recall that in Galatians chapter 3 that we were taken through uh, uh, really some 2,000 years of history uh, from Abraham to Moses to Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, we were reminded that there was a promise given to Abraham, but then when the law was given to Moses, it did not annul that previously given promise, Uh, but rather that the law served as a kind of prison warden or teacher to bring us to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God's promise that was originally made to Abraham is fulfilled. And we enter into the full privileges as sons of God and the true offspring of Abraham. And that really brings us now uh, into chapter four. So let's now hear God's word, uh, Galatians chapter four, beginning at verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, And if a son, then an heir through God. This ends this reading in God's uh, holy word. Let's turn again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we give you thanks for uh, your holy word uh, and for the glorious riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are open for us here. Uh, Here are riches that are greater than all the gold and silver of the world. Here here is truth uh, in a world full of lies. Here, O Lord, is proclaimed to us a real relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, that we would know you through faith, is there anything greater in all the world? And so, O Lord, our God, we pray that though the devil would seek to distract us and tempt us to turn aside, O Lord, grant that we would pay careful heed to your word and that we would receive it not only in hearing what is said, but by believing it all through Jesus Christ, we pray, Uh, amen. one of the uh, lord's kind gifts to us as people made in his image is the gift of being set in families it's still in the garden of eden before sin ever entered the world that after making adam he said that it is not good for man to be alone he made eve and even then in the garden He gave that woman to that man and really ordered that throughout all of human history that family units should be established, that children should be raised uh, within the context of the human family, and that the family even would be a place where uh, love and joy is known. Now, as we uh, make our way through human history, we realize that not everyone experiences all those joys of a family. Many people are brought up in broken homes because of sin they have not known uh, parents' love. Uh, Some are married, some are not. Some experience great joy in their marriage, others do not. Uh, So while the family is still one of the Lord's kind blessings to His people, Uh, not everyone experiences uh, all the joys of family life. That being said, what a wonderful truth it is that when you become a Christian, no matter what kind of human family you have had, you are brought into a family that is far greater still. And that is that you are brought into the family of God. And even if you have had a wonderful earthly father, Uh, To know God as your heavenly Father is an even greater and richer experience. And to then have as brothers and sisters in Christ others who are redeemed by that same grace again brings us into the orbit of this family of God where there are wonderful joys to be known. And so, dear friends, when the Lord redeems us, one of the highest of all of the redemptive privileges that we have, is that we become the adopted sons of the living God. Praise God for that. And it is that glorious privilege of our adoption through Jesus Christ that is brought out for us in the verses that are before us today in Galatians. And so it is my hope and prayer that as we make our way through these verses that we will see Not only the state from which we were brought, a state of slavery, but we will see the extraordinary work of Jesus Christ in bringing us into a state of sonship. But then in the last couple of verses, we will know something of the glorious experience of this sonship uh, in him. And so we're going to have three simple points. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we'll see what it is uh, before we were sons. Uh, secondly, we will see what it is to become sons, and then thirdly, we will see what it is to experience that sonship. So before being sons, becoming sons, and experiencing uh, sonship. Now you'll say, well, aren't you using the word son a lot? What about daughters? Uh, well, again, let me just say this, that the Bible here uses the language of sonship for both men and Women, You'll remember at the very end of Galatians chapter 3 that it said that in Jesus Christ there is no male and female that neither men nor women experience higher redemptive privileges in Christ well if that is so then why is the word son used well it's because under ancient practice it was sons who were heirs and so whether you are male or female you are made a son of God, meaning that you are heirs of God with him being uh, your heavenly uh, father. And so the sonship that we're talking about today is not just for the men here. Uh, This is for men and women alike, all who are redeemed uh, in Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, we have set set up for us in verses 1 through 3 the experience before Uh, We were sons. And it kind of tells you a story in these first verses. I want to tell that story uh, to you. Children, maybe you can listen very carefully here and imagine this story. A long time ago, uh, there was a very, very wealthy man. This wealthy man owned a very large home, he had lots of land and had many possessions. Well, this very wealthy man had a son. Now, if he has a son, his firstborn son is what? Well, that firstborn son is the heir of all that the father has. All that the father owns would one day belong to this son. But, while the son is still a child, he doesn't possess all of it yet. You might say, well, why is that? Well, why isn't all of this the sons at age five, for example? Well, it's because, as many of us know, if a five-year-old were suddenly given loads and loads of money and a home to manage and a business to run, well, the five-year-old wouldn't do a very good job at it, right? Because a five-year-old needs to gradually be brought up he or she is immature needs to be trained for a series of years before the child enters into that full inheritance and so this young child is put under a guardian and this guardian raises the child and trains the child you can think of a guardian as kind of like a nanny but also a tutor of kind and so though the little boy is the heir of all of these things well in this home he doesn't yet get to call the shots instead the guardian tells that little boy everything when to get up what he needs to wear that day how he's supposed to behave oh all of his school lessons too he has to go through all of those and That guardian disciplines the boy as well. And so even though the boy is the heir of all things, the son of the wealthy father, nonetheless, this boy during his childhood is a little bit more like a slave. He is the heir of everything, yes, but he's treated more like a slave. Commands, instructions, obedience until he reaches that stage of maturity. And that's really the exact situation that verses 1 to 2 of our text describe. He says that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, the the, the situation that I've just described is kind of how the Old Testament functioned for the people of God. Uh, Under the law of Moses, uh, the people at times felt kind of like slaves. Laws governed everything from what and when they could eat to what they could wear, to the calendar of special holidays and feast days, to the ways that they interacted with their neighbors, to the sacrifices that were to be offered in Jerusalem, just the right kinds of sacrifices and just... These kinds of ways to the peculiar and particular instruction, for example, given to the tabernacle and then later to the temple, as we read out of the book of Exodus. And within the Old Covenant, there were not just moral laws, the Ten Commandments, that reflect the character of God, but also endless ceremonial and civil laws. And these laws uh, taught the people of God. They were useful, part of God's plan to instruct them. Uh, Verse 3 describes it this way. He says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now here I think he's describing again primarily uh, the people of God under the law of Moses. That language, the elementary principles, it's actually used in a variety of different ways in a number of New Testament passages, but it's basically a phrase that means uh, the basic uh, principles of the world, the, what you might call the ABCs, uh, kind of uh, the elementary school for the people. And it says we were enslaved to a kind of uh, basic education that was given for the people of God under age. It was a period that was necessary. It prepared them for the coming of Jesus Christ. That Old Covenant was necessary with all of its laws and ceremonies to teach the people about God and sin and redemption and holiness and to make them long for a Messiah. And it was good. Old Covenant Israel was, as it were, the church under age. It was like the the son of a wealthy landowner as a child, the rightful heir, but under a kind of guardianship until the time appointed by the father, when that child would come into full possession of all of those privileges. A son treated like a slave. And so that's what it's first of all describing here, this period, a kind of before sonship. And you'll remember it was a temptation for the Galatians Uh, to kind of go back to uh, the Old Covenant, even now that Christ has come. And what he's trying to say is, no, that was appropriate for a time. But now that Christ has come, we've entered into a greater redemptive privilege through him. And so that's what he's going to now describe. And it is what we're going to describe now, secondly, as becoming sons. We have now been brought from a kind of slavery into sonship. And that's what verses 4 and 5 describe for us, how we are brought into this greater state of sonship. And you will notice here that it has entirely to do with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Friends, when we think about the Christian life, it needs to, as it were, begin and end with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is everything. It is Christ who has done what we were unable to do. Christ who has accomplished our redemption. And verses four and five are uh, one of the most beautiful statements in all of scripture describing the significance of Christ's coming and what he has done for us. Uh, We can even kind of break down verses 4 and 5 here into its uh, little phrases. And uh, men, we, yesterday in our men's breakfast, we talked about meditation. And uh, here you could, you could spend time meditating on each of the little phrases of verses 4 and 5 and what it tells us about uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that for a few moments. We're going to see uh, five different things here in verses 4 and 5 about the coming of Christ. And the effect that it has. The first of those things is I want you to see Christ's timing. Christ's timing. Okay. Verse 4 begins, but when the fullness of time had come. When was Christ sent? At what's described here as the fullness of time. The time... Appointed by the father. You know, in ancient Greek culture, again, if we're going to go to this uh, analogy of a child brought up in a wealthy home, in ancient Greek culture, there wasn't an age, like 18 or 21 or 25 or anything like that, when a son would receive the full rights of his inheritance. Rather, the father determined the time. And so it is with us. It was our heavenly father who... Sovereignly determined when His people would enter into the full rights of their inheritance through the work of the Son. At just the right time, not a moment earlier, not a moment too late, the Lord sent His Son. You know, that's kind of how Jesus announced His coming, didn't He? When Jesus came uh, announcing it, He said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15. And so it's really at the fullness of time that Christ came. Christ's coming is the central event that has happened in all of human history. I mean, we mark our calendars by it, don't we? Anything before it is B.C., Anything after it is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We're in the year of our Lord, 2023. That many years since the coming of uh, Jesus Christ. And in the same way that we mark our calendars by it, so really all of human history is marked by it. There's nothing more important than the coming of Jesus Christ. The Lord sent him at just the right time. I have an older relative um, uh, who was uh, very, very godly, um, but who would also frequently get tongue-tied. Uh, and he once prayed out loud, and I think he was reflecting on this verse, when he said, uh, Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus just when time was the nickiest. <laughs> and I think it was just a, a great phrase. Uh, <laughs> And you know, the Father did send the Lord Jesus just when time was the nickiest. He works sovereignly in this way. You know, it was just when we needed Christ, that Christ came. And even in our own lives, we can think of it in that way, that the Lord converted us and He brings us through trials as the Lord of, of all of our days too. Christ's timing was in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus came. Well, the second is uh, Christ's origin, not just Christ's timing, but Christ's origin. Who did the Father send? Well, there we are told that God sent forth His Son. Who did the Father send? The Father sent His own Son. And it shows that Christ existed even before He appeared in Bethlehem's manger. He was the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, and He didn't cease being the Son when He was sent. So it was the Son of the Father who was sent into this world. And so He was still the Son when He was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in Bethlehem's manger. He was still the Son when he grew up as a carpenter's boy. He was the Eternal Son who preached his first sermon in Nazareth, and withstood the devil's temptation in the wilderness. He was the Son when he multiplied the fish and the loaves to feed five thousand, and when he gave the blind man his sight. He was the Son who taught as the One who had authority, and when He spoke the words of life. And dear friends, He was the Son as He hung willingly from the Roman cross, bearing our sins, the eternal Son dying for our salvation. And He was the Son who rose triumphant from the grave and who now rules from the Father's right hand in heaven. Dear friends, as we think about the work of Jesus Christ, it wasn't just the work of some heroic man that we might read about and admire who lived long ago, but they are the works of the eternal Son of God for your salvation. It was the Son of the Father who was sent for us. But the fact that it was the Son also means that the one whom the Father sent is the one whom He eternally loved. It was the very Son of His love, the greatest gift that could be given. The One who, as it were, dwelt in the Father's bosom from all eternity. This One, this Son, was given for us. What love there is in that. So Christ's timing, He came in the fullness of time. Who was it that came? Christ's uh, uh, Christ's origin is the Son. Thirdly, we see something of Christ's humanity in these verses. God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Born of woman. And this points to the true humanity of our Lord. The Lord Jesus was one who was conceived in the womb of Mary, developed as a fetus, Passed through a birth canal. He was one who was held as a newborn baby. He was and he is truly human. The Son took our nature. He became truly man. He humbled himself. How did the Son humble himself? Not by means of subtraction. He didn't cease being God. But he humbled himself by means of addition. He added to his perfect God nature, a real genuine human nature. And so he was in one person, both God and man forever. God sent his son born of woman. So as one who is truly one of us, he had... Thoughts, even as we have thoughts. He had emotions, even as we feel things. He had a real physical body. And He took our place as our substitute on Calvary's tree. And He hasn't ceased to be man now. He is, as our elder brother, He has a perfect, glorified humanity at the Father's right hand. And one day, our humanity is going to be glorified even as his is. He is truly human. So Christ's timing, Christ's origin, Christ's humanity, fourthly now, Christ's obedience. Christ's obedience. He was born of woman, born under the law. So though he was the author of the law as the eternal God, he willingly submitted himself to it. He was a Jewish boy growing up under all the ceremonies and forms of the law of Moses. But even more importantly, he was under God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, God's standard of perfect righteousness that all of us are under as well. And though you and I have sinned against God's moral law, in a thousand ways, though we daily break it in thought, word, and deed, and fail to keep that law, Christ, who was born under that law, kept it perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And this obedient, law-keeping righteousness of Christ was crucial to His redeeming work. Theologians have called it Christ's active obedience. His passive obedience was His submission to the law's penalty and His death on the cross. And it's both His active obedience to the law and His passive obedience, suffering on the cross, that are important. Because if Christ had not been Perfectly righteous, He could not have been our spotless substitute for unrighteous sinners. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So Christ's obedience. But now fifth, the fifth thing that we see is Christ's purpose. Why was it that Christ came as one who was born of woman born under the law? Well, verse 5 tells us that purpose, and it's really a twofold purpose, you'll notice in verse 5. On the one hand, it is to redeem those who were under the law. It's the purpose of redemption. Now, redemption refers to the freeing of a slave by the payment of a price and Christ paid the price for our freedom through His death on the cross. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so the perfect spotless Lamb of God became cursed for us on Calvary's cross and by that He secured our forgiveness and our freedom. What a glorious act this was. You know, we rightly often honor acts of self-sacrifice, don't we? Yes. Just Friday was uh, Veterans Day. And we are reminded, and we honor those in our own nation who have given of themselves, even putting their own lives on the line in order to secure our nation's uh, liberties. Well, those are rightly glorious acts of self-sacrifice. Well, dear friends, Christ's act is the greatest sacrifice that there ever was. And it was an act of sacrifice for you. He willingly went to the cross in order to redeem you from Satan's grip, to redeem you from the guilt of your own sin, so that you might be bought for God. Redeemed and brought into his presence in his in fellowship with him. It is the purpose of redemption. But not only is Christ's purpose a purpose of redemption, secondly, it is then a purpose of adoption. We see this at the end of verse 5. Why did Christ do this? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is, Christ rescued us. He paid the price for our freedom. But more than that, dear friends, when Christ redeems us, he actually brings us into the family of God. And friends, this is the highest of all redemptive purposes. Not only are our sins forgiven, not only do we have rights standing before God, not only are we brought into his kingdom, but friends, he brings us into his very family where we are now accounted his children and he is our heavenly father. We are his adopted children. Now, you understand to be an adopted child of God doesn't mean that somehow we are a second class. I'm an adoptive father. My adopted children are my children. That's what they are. They are My children. And so it is when we are adopted into the family of God, we are made His children. We are loved fully. We are loved completely. And we are adopted because He has chosen us to be part of His family. He has set His love upon us. He picked us. And has done everything to bring us now into the full experience of that sonship. What a glorious work this is. And so do you see all that God has done for our redemption? You know, these two verses, verses 4 and 5, these are verses worth memorizing. One of the most beautiful summaries of Christ's redemptive work, all that he has done to bring us to the highest state of, of privilege. Let me just draw a couple applications from this before we move on to our final point. on the one hand, you'll notice in describing the work of Christ how on the one hand how doctrinal this is. Does doctrine matter? Yes and it matters because it speaks truth, truth, apart from which, there would be no redemption of sinners. If Christ was not God and man, He could have never redeemed us. But listen to what Christ has done. He has redeemed us as God, as man, as the one who was fully righteous and never sinned, as the one who died a sacrificial death on our behalf. All of that are doctrinal statements which express the beautiful, glorious reality of salvation in Jesus Christ. So we love doctrine not because we are just intellectual kinds of people or we like to argue or something. We love doctrine because it's the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so can I encourage you even to be doctrinally discerning people. Young people, you're going to grow up from here. At times, at some point in your life, you're going to have to look for a church if you move away, look for a church to attend and to be under the ministry and eventually to join and to be a part of and to have as your church home. It needs to be a church where truth, where doctrinal truth, biblical truth is expressed clearly and is taught to you. And there's not... A changing. There's not a moving back and forth. There's not an ambiguity about it all. And, and as well, can I say, you'll notice here that the doctrine is that which centers on Jesus Christ. So a biblical church is one that makes much of Jesus Christ. And that kind of leads me into the second point of application that I want to make at this point. You know that one of the marks of genuine Christianity, friends, is that you become utterly obsessed with Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a world where people are utterly obsessed with themselves. Where the height of experience is expressing your own identity, who you are. We live in an age of comparison. How do I stand compared to everybody else? It's just fueled by by social media and everybody presents their own self-image online and we notice, well, what about that person's vacations or that person's appearance or what the life that they're living, how do I compare uh, to that? And we begin to measure ourselves continually, full of ourselves and we and we begin to think, well, what matters is my performance, my school scores or my job reviews. or the number of likes that I have on social media, or the number of wins that I have on the athletic field. Or if you own a business, the number of good Google reviews that I have. And and we begin to measure our life by our performance. How do I stack up compared to everybody else? How am I expressing uh, myself? And we become, in our age, utterly obsessed with ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a good thing to want to excel whether you're in school or whether you're in business or even on the athletic field, that's not a bad thing, okay? But I do think that to focus on self and to measure ourselves continually in light of everyone else, friends, that's also one of the things that fuels the deep anxiety and the fear that mark our present age, is it not? Is it not this focus on self? Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote over all of his attempts at self-righteousness? All of his own descriptions of who he was and what he had attained and his own identity and his own mark. He said, it is all done. It's rubbish. Compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. You see, that's the mark of a genuine Christian. is that we are utterly obsessed with Jesus Christ. He is my all in all. I want to know Him. I want to know what He's done. I want to know His love. I want to know fellowship with Him. I want to speak with others about about Jesus. And, And can I just say to you that that's the mark of a genuine Christian life. It is that you have thoughts that are not always centered on yourself, but thoughts that are thinking about Jesus Christ and that are speaking about Jesus Christ uh, to others, we sing, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Is Christ the boast of your life? See all that Christ has done for sinners like us. How are we brought, as it were, from slavery into the highest experiences of sonship? It's not a word said about us, it's all about Jesus. And what he has done. Now let's move on thirdly then. Our third point is experiencing sonship. So we've seen what it was before we were sons. And then how we become sons. And now through the work of Christ. But now third and finally experiencing sonship. So we are the adopted children of God through Jesus Christ. And the point is is as those who have now been the adopted children of God, we need to live like that. We are now called to live our Christian lives with a heavenly Father who loves us. Having a relationship with God that is not a relationship of slavery, but that of sonship. I mean, those of you who are earthly parents, think of it this way. Those of you who are who are earthly parents, how do you want your children to relate to you? Do you want them to know that you love them? The answer is yes. You desperately want them to know that you love them. Do you want your children to talk to you? Yes. Do you you want your children to trust you? And the answer is yes. Earthly parents want a relationship, a living relationship with their children. Well, so it is with God when He makes us His children. It's so that we will know fellowship with Him, a real living relationship with Him through, through Jesus Christ. And in order to create that fellowship, that those bonds of intimacy, He actually gives us a gift, and it's mentioned in verse six. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Earlier we saw that He has sent Jesus Christ. He has sent His Son into the world to redeem us, accomplish our redemption. Now in verse 6 we're told He has sent His Spirit into our hearts so that we will have close fellowship with Him. So God gives us His Holy Spirit. It is a Spirit who is the witness to that sonship, who is the one who prompts us to live as sons in our lives. And so here we see that this work of adoption has a kind of Trinitarian shape. We become the sons of the Father, but it's because of the work of Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit who assures us of that that sonship. And so then, dear friends, as those who have received the Holy Spirit as sons of God, what are we then to do? On the one hand, we see that we enjoy an intimacy with God who is our Father. Verse 6, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So the Spirit, as it were, creates that yearning, that crying out unto God. And the words there are both in the Aramaic and the Greek. It's a term of, of respect, but also of intimacy as, as we cry out in the extremity of our need. And, and what, a, what a beautiful thought this is, isn't it? That no matter what situation you are in, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter how desperate your situation, no matter how dark things look, no matter how much at the end of your rope you feel that you are, it's in the midst of that that we then have a Holy Spirit in us who is causing us to cry out unto our Heavenly Father and to know His love and His care and His peace and His joy. The very God of heaven is the one who loves me. And He's the one who knows me and I can trust in Him. He is my Father. The Spirit causes me to cry out, Abba, Father. And so we are to know an in intimacy with the living God as our Father, but then also we become then heirs with God. And you'll see that in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is the promise that all that belongs to the Heavenly Father becomes yours through Jesus Christ. And the Spirit's the seal of that inheritance, assuring us that it is all ours. And so again, whatever experience you are going through in this world, you can do it knowing that heaven has already been won for you. And that through this life you can go walking with God to that day when you shall behold Him face to face. So, our Father wants us to live, to act as sons, sons in intimacy with Him, sons in expectation of the glory that yet awaits us. Is that the shape of our Christian life, our experience as sons? John Stott, in his commentary, uh, tells the story of uh, John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley lived in the 1700s. Uh, He went to Oxford during his postgraduate days. uh, He, along with others, including the great evangelist George Whitfield, formed the Holy Club in Oxford. Um, Wesley was a son of a clergyman. He was already a clergyman himself. Uh, He was Orthodox in many of his Uh, Beliefs and he was upright in conduct and he was full of various good works. He and his friends would visit the prisons and um, The workhouses of Oxford they would take pity on uh, the homeless and provide for their uh, needs with food and clothing and education Uh, They would observe uh, The Sabbath carefully they went even to church Uh, They even read their scriptures. They fasted and prayed. It really sounds like an exemplary life, right? What young men these were, these postgraduates in Oxford, doing such things. And yet, by Wesley's own admission, during this whole time, he was not a Christian. He was doing these things out of a sense of self-righteousness rather than putting his trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was doing many things, but he didn't know that relationship of a son to a heavenly father. And it was only a little bit later, in as he was walking in Aldersgate Street in London, that he happened to walk into a certain house in that evening. And in the evening, he says, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where somebody was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine that night, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. From that moment on, and into the years that went into the future, he knew God as a father. In fact, later, looking back on his pre-conversion experience, he wrote, Oh, before I was a Christian, even then I had the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. He hadn't truly trusted the Lord. And friends, it is that experience that we are to have. Not just the experience of slaves. Religion is not just a slavish thing, friends. But rather to be redeemed by Jesus Christ means to enter into the beauties and the glories of sonship. To know Him as our Father. And to trust in Him. In this life and the life to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage in the book of Galatians. We do pray, O Lord, that we would know something of the beauty of adoption, to know you, O living God, as our Father, to know Christ as our Redeemer, to know the Spirit as the one who indwells us and assures us of everlasting life. Lord, our God in heaven, we pray that we would experience that adoption as sons, really the fullness of your redeeming work, that we would trust in Christ and know what it is to be his child. Oh Lord, give us joy and hope in believing. We pray that we would follow you not out of simply a kind of slavish obedience, but we would do so joyfully as loving children to a heavenly father. Oh Lord, do these things we pray. We thank you for the greatness of your work. and We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. We're going to stand and sing now. It's a hymn which expresses uh, really the joy of this sonship. Uh, It is hymn number 275. Hymn 275, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Mm Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.